Uh, our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Thanks, Chris. Uh, extra fist bumps this morning. You guys are here at the 9.30 on Spring Forward. Um, extra fist bumps to our uh, uh, early team, too. Um, everyone here this morning was smiling and happy and enthusiastic. It was amazing. Um, you guys are, you guys are maybe amazing, our church family. Um, I, uh, I, I find it interesting. Um, one of the things that I think that I've been learning lately that it's really interesting uh, when life pushes you to reflect on things from uh, your childhood, good, bad, uh, everything in between, and try to make sense of all the stuff um, that happened to you, maybe the forces that shaped you into who you are. As a child of Taiwanese immigrants, one of those forces for me was my culture of origin. And growing up in upstate New York where there weren't a lot of Asian people, uh, my parents helped us to try to keep the language and the culture by having us go to Chinese school on Saturday mornings, which was really rough. Uh, all the Mandarin Chinese-speaking people in the area went to the same Chinese school on Saturday mornings, and there were only a couple of kids in each grade. So, by nature of the setup, you became friends and you became enemies, and in some cases, you became best frenemies. And uh, we got to know each other's families pretty well. Uh, I was um, grateful for some amazing Chinese aunties in my life growing up who I appreciated for so many reasons, uh, and who, I'm just gonna say it, tended to express love by being really direct. Um, you know, some of them are in my extended family. Uh, some of them were the, the, the moms of these friends growing up with. And uh, if you gained weight, yeah, you would hear about it. Uh, if you lost too much weight, uh, you heard about it. If you weren't dressed warmly enough, you heard about it. And uh, if one of your cousins or a friend was doing something particularly spectacular or uh, especially terrible, you would also hear about it. Um, if, uh, there was one auntie in particular, I remember, uh, that really liked to compare. And 
Um, she would pit us against each other on almost everything. You know, who won the speech contest, who's better at math, uh, who speaks better Chinese, who reads more, who's a better sister. And we didn't think anything of it at the time, but in retrospect, it was you know, pretty disastrous for our friendships um, in the moment. It, it took literally the grace of God, and, and really, truly, because um, many of us actually came to know Jesus later on in life as uh, high schoolers or in college, um, for us to maintain friendships into adulthood, um, which I'm grateful that we did. Um, but we were indoctrinated uh, to believe at a young age um, to put our worth uh, in what we performed, what we looked like, um, how we behaved, and uh, essentially to see life as a zero-sum game. The reality is whether or not we have an auntie like this in our life when we're kids, um, we're conditioned at a very young age that we do something to earn something. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing. I mean, look at potty training, the very popular and slightly controversial M&M strategy, right? Uh, we used it with both our kids to great success, right? Pee pee in the potty and you get an M&M. And then 30 minutes later, pee pee in the potty again and you get another M. M&M, it's, it's really, it works, it works really well. Um, I, I won't go into gory detail, but let's just say that the first time something more than PP landed in the potty, uh, it was more than an M&M. I mean, we did a dance party, we had ice cream, I love ice cream, so any excuse to feed my kids ice cream, I love ice cream. Strong supporter of the M&M and ice cream potty trading strategy. Maybe you use stickers, maybe you use something else. The same idea, you do something and you earn something. And then as we get older, it's do your homework and you earn screen time. Wear the right clothes, you fit in, do your chores, you get allowance, score a lot of baskets or touchdowns, you earn the right to start, it's real life. Because the system keeps going, right? Get good grades, you get to go to college, you get your first job, you get a paycheck, you do a really good job, you get a promotion, your startup does well, it sells. Uh, and we do want to teach our kids that hard work matters that perseverance and grit are important. Malcolm Gladwell popularized this notion in his book Outliers that practicing or working at something for 10,000 hours is what creates an expert. Our society loves it, ate it up. This is how you become successful, like Bill Gates or Michael Jordan. It takes major commitment. Hard work is good. Excellence is good. They're biblical, in fact. That's what makes today's saying a hard one to understand. The last will be first and the first will be last. Because this parable doesn't seem to promote proportional compensation. And the hard saying flips the computation upside down. A law-based system is a lot easier for us to make sense of. It's human nature to be a lot more comfortable when input is proportional to output, when there's some mathematical predictability to the outcome. And for much of life, that's actually true, although more on that later. But is that how the kingdom of God works? Is that how our entrance to eternity works? And is that how our rewards in eternity will be computed? That's what we're looking at together in today's passage. Acknowledging our human tendency for comparison in all aspects of life and examining some of the ways it ensnares us and steals our joy. And then doing our best to understand how Jesus reframes our life outlook with the kingdom of God. Uh, if we can actually come to understand what is so amazing about grace, it gives us the freedom to live differently and increasingly unbound by these constraints, even in this life and definitely into eternity. So first things first, hard work. Is Jesus discrediting the economy of hard work with this teaching? No, he's really not. We have a landowner in the story who's got a lot of work he needs to get done, 
You know, maybe it's fields and fields of grapes that need to be picked. And in verse 2, he goes out to the marketplace early in the morning, that would have connoted about 6 a.m. at the time, and makes an agreement with a batch of workers that a denarius will be paid for a day's worth of unskilled labor. And then in verse 10, they're paid that denarius. A denarius was standard pay for a day of labor. And some commentators will say that it was actually standard pay for a day of skilled labor. So this was already generous on the part of the landowner for the type of unskilled work being done. Faithful work in the context of a job is valued and good and rewarded in this passage. There are many parts of scripture where we are told to do our work excellently for the glory of God. That is good. It's when we begin to compare and when we get it mixed up with our worth that it starts to become really dangerous. Jesus is issuing a warning that this kind of comparison and the envy or pride that can result robs us of the freedom he intends us to find and live with as we follow him, even in this life. Comparison creates discontent and takes our eyes off what is good. It's so obvious in this passage where the root issue comes from. There are a total of five groups of workers hired by this landowner throughout the day, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. When the wages are distributed by the foreman at the end of the day, he starts with those that are hired at the last hour and then works backwards to the ones hired at 3 p.m., 12 p.m., and 9 a.m., giving all of them the same pay as the landowner has ordered. By this point, the workers hired at 6 a.m. who had agreed to work all day for that pay of one denarius have been watching and see that everyone's been given the same wage that they were promised. So by comparison, they come to think that they should receive more. If they had been the only workers that had been hired that day, and they got that denarius at the end of it as agreed, they would have been quite happy. Not every day worker got hired during those times. So if they got a generous day's wage, it would have been quite satisfying. But because there are others in the picture, they're not only discontent, they're indignant. They're grumbling against the landowner, and they feel a sense of entitlement and maybe even some pride. How dare you make them equal to us? In quick succession, they've taken their eyes off what is good, that they got to work today and earned a generous wage, turned their eyes to themselves. We were the ones who bore the burden of the work. We were the ones slaving away in the heat of the day. And discontent is all they end up feeling, in addition to some envy and pride. It's human nature to compare, is it not? And it's so easy to become discontent. Our kids go to the neighborhood school um, around the corner, and uh, one family we love who we've become really good friends with, uh, they're really good about healthy eating. They don't ever eat, their kids don't ever eat those snacks that you get, they take turns bringing at the end of baseball and basketball games, which is pretty amazing. Uh, they eat a lot of vegetables, and their kids eat them really fast. It's really impressive. Um, but they do get treats once in a while, right? And as you can imagine, when they do, the treats are really precious to them. We were out at dinner with them a couple of weeks ago celebrating one of the kids' birthdays, and uh, it was a spot where it's their tradition for everyone to get a kid-sized cone or shake after dinner. One of their grandparents had very generously bought all of our dinners, so I was up there trying to get them let us buy dessert, and I asked my friend, it's your son's birthday, would it be okay if we get him a big one? Right, like clearly I have problems with ice cream. And because we're good enough friends to say no to each other, she said, yeah, no, let's not, because it just becomes a thing. The kids already thought the kid-sized cone was so beyond amazing, but if one of them got a bigger one, what might happen? Their eyes might be taken off this precious treat right in front of them. 
discontent might quickly arise, and it would suddenly appear small instead of amazing. And for some of them, it might become envy or indignation. How come I didn't get a bigger one on my birthday two months ago? What about me? Let's be real. This dynamic doesn't just happen with ice cream. It happens with relationships. It happens with perf season and promotion cycles at work. Maybe it's with comparing where you are in your career to where someone else is. If you're married, it happens in all different kinds of ways, right? We can end up comparing the dynamic of our marriage with someone else's marriage. We can compare with our spouse. This is my load and this is your load. There are many things to compare, right? Um, everything from roles and relationships to parenting. It happens with how we look. It happens with social media. You get the point. It's incredibly easy to compare and for those comparisons to take our eyes off what is good and create discontent. And not only is there discontent that arises from comparison, but where we place our worth can be impacted as a result. Like my friends and me as little elementary schoolers, as we listen to us get compared by an auntie, our eyes are turned away from relationship, from our friendships, and focused onto ourselves and what we have or what we don't have. In verse 15, the landowner calls out that the workers are envious. And with it, they express an indignation that comes from misattributing worth. You made them equal to us, they say, which is actually saying we are better than them. It's appropriate at this juncture to remind ourselves that comparison happens in two directions. What about those occasions when you are dealt the better hand, where you're the one who gets an amazing review and the promotion, where you're successful, where your relationships are well? It's just as easy, probably more so, to allow that to affect our worth. We celebrate, which is absolutely should, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice when things are good. But maybe instead of praising God and thanking God for what happened, for our gifts, the places he's put us in, the opportunities he's given us and that have led to this moment, instead it can be easy to believe that the good thing has happened because we are deserving. To further stake our worth on what we do, which might feel good in the moment, but in reality is tying tighter and tighter knots around us and snaring us into a self-focused, results-based worth that can only disappoint in the long run because we're not actually in control. Comparison creates discontent, takes our eyes off what is good, and can trap us into performance-based worth. Let's spend a couple minutes looking at the landowner here. He's pretty unusual. He clearly has a lot of resources at his disposal, he had more than enough work for everyone because he just kept hiring people. In verse eight, we see he has a foreman, but instead of sending that foreman out to the marketplace to hire the day workers, he chooses to go out himself many times. Early in the morning, verse one, about nine in the morning, verse three, about noon and about three in the afternoon, verse five, and about five in the afternoon, verse six. He's an employer that initiates and cares about who he's hiring, just as God initiates and cares about us. In verse 6, he seems surprised to see guys still at the marketplace and asks why they've been standing around all day doing nothing. When they answer that no one has hired them, he has compassion and gives them an hour of work. Note that for every batch of laborers other than the first ones at 6 a.m., he doesn't contract a specific fee. I will pay you whatever is right, he says. And at the end of the day, he's generous, incredibly generous, giving a full day's wage, whether they worked one hour or 12 hours. Jesus is trying to tell us something about the economy of God and his kingdom. 
What breaks down performance-based worth is learning to understand that our worth is not based on who we are, but entirely on who God is and his generosity. God is never less than fair, but he has every right to be more than fair, which he is with all of us. The landowner paid exactly what he committed to the workers. Friend, he says so lovingly in verse 13, I'm not being unfair to you. This is what you agreed to work for, but I choose to be generous to these others. Are you envious of my generosity? To take it another step, scripture is clear that what is actually fair for all of us is to reap the consequences of falling short, which we all do. In Romans 3.10, it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. The reality is that we are broken people that live in a broken world, and none of us could ever do enough good things to earn our way fairly into the kingdom of God. What Jesus is actually helping us to understand when he says, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last, is there will no one claim deserved membership in the kingdom of God based on our own performance. The problem is we spend too much time trapped by comparing our place in line compared to somebody else's according to the economy that we understand here. The things that we can see, promotions, bank accounts, education, winning, and missing out on the fact that the kingdom of God operates on an entirely different framework. I don't know about you, but I actually don't think that the 5 p.m. workers had that great of a deal. They spent much of the day in uncertainty, waiting around, standing in the marketplace, not knowing if they're going to walk away with anything that day. Given the choice, I'd much rather be secure in the end game, which when we apply to this story and to the kingdom of God is the hope of eternal life. One of the most common objections that will come up when you have spiritual conversations with friends trying to figure out the Christian faith, it came up in conversation at Alpha just a couple weeks ago, is, you know, if all of this is true, why wouldn't I just live a life where I do whatever and then, you know, tell Jesus I want to receive him on my deathbed and I'm good? Well, first, that assumes you have control over when you die. And as the common saying goes, you never know you could get hit by a bus tomorrow, or in the Silicon Valley, more likely a self-driving car. Second, that logic assumes that knowing Jesus and living for the kingdom of God in this life is not preferable. That God's presence and power in your life is not preferable. That might be a miss. It seems worth taking a moment to dig into that a little further. This parable and hard saying we just read follows a passage on a similar theme. Right before this, at the very end of chapter 19, the disciples or the 12 guys that follow Jesus for most of his ministry have just listened to Jesus say something really hard to a rich young ruler, which David talked about two weeks ago. And they're feeling pretty astonished by what they're hearing. Because Jesus is saying that someone who has a lot of material things, which in that society was assumed to mean spiritual favor, has a hard or impossible time entering the kingdom of God. So being very human, Peter immediately goes, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? I love this. This is us. He hears the teaching, he processes it, and asks a mercenary question that misses the concept entirely. But I did this for you, Jesus. What will this mean for me in terms of rewards? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. There it is again, today's hard saying, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Jesus acknowledges Peter's tendency and our tendency to compare and try to calculate output by saying, yes, there will be rewards. But by saying that the return will be hundredfold, he's also gently rebuking that the reward is so far beyond anything Peter or we could give up or sacrifice that there's no way we could ever match or deserve God's generosity. He's saying you might be surprised by my computation and what reward looks like. It's not a prescriptive role reversal that those who are well off or have status here will be last in the kingdom and those who are poor here will automatically have position. There are biblical figures who are well off like Abraham who's remembered in Hebrews 11 for living by faith, for going when God said to go, even when he didn't know where he was going. Or Job who trusted God although he lost everything including his family and was ultimately restored to health and wealth. There are also those who are not well off, who don't live and invest for the sake of God's kingdom in this life and won't necessarily be in places of honor. This is not an absolute prescription. Ironically, if it were a prescription, that would make this a rules-based system, similar to comparison, which we're told over and over in scripture that Jesus has come to free us from. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, Galatians 5.1. Jesus is saying, I'm probably going to surprise you by replacing your law-based computation system with a grace-based framework based not on who you are and what you've done, but entirely based on who he is and what he values the most, which is what? Look at the end of verse 29, and will inherit eternal life, full stop. That's the big gift. If you've ever experienced the death of a loved one, if you've been through serious illness or injury yourself, we have cancer survivors here in our midst. You then understand this, maybe understand this a little bit better. Everywhere right now we are hearing about uncertainty and death rates with COVID-19, coronavirus. Whatever the route, there will come a time if it hasn't already, that we're faced with thinking about mortality in a much more real way. And in that, the hope of eternity is a freeing gift. In this life, it's preferable, it's powerful. It unbinds so much of what ties up our worth in performance and comparison and frees us to focus on relationship and to better understand a grace-based framework for our lives. There was a video going around a while ago which had a bunch of high school students lined up at a starting line in a race. The moderator guy's yelling, line up, line up, everybody line up. The winner of this race will get a $100 bill. And then he says, before I say go, I'm going to list a couple of statements. And if these statements apply to you, I want you to take two steps forward. If the statements don't apply to you, just stay right where you are. Take two steps forward if you grew up with a father figure in the home. Take two steps forward if you had access to a free tutor or someone to help with your homework growing up. Take two steps forward if you never had to help mom or dad with the bills. Take two steps forward if it's not because of your athletic ability that you don't have to pay for college. 
By the time he's done with these statements, there are some kids halfway down the field to the finish line. And we all know that these kids now have a better chance to win that $100 bill. These statements are about good things, are they not? We hope all of these things for the kids we love and that are in our lives. But none of these statements have anything to do with the kids' inherent worth. The kids that are halfway up the field are not more worthy. Like the 5 p.m. batch of workers, they were given opportunity that they took and ran with, literally. But there was a lot of grace in where they started. And it doesn't make sense for the kids to get their worth from where they stand in line. Yet in many ways, this is how our world operates and compares. If we were to attempt to recreate the video to illustrate the lesson that Jesus is teaching here, that many who are last will be first and many who are first will be last, it might look something like this. Line up, everybody line up. Okay, we're racing for a ticket to eternal life. It's not a zero-sum game. Everyone that crosses the finish line gets a ticket. Now, this statement is true if you take two steps forward. Take two steps forward if you grew up with parents that followed Jesus. Take two steps forward if someone's ever shared a story of the power of Jesus in their life with you. Take two steps forward if anyone's ever prayed with you and you were going through a hard time. Take two steps forward if you've experienced the death of a loved one and been forced to think about your mortality. At the end of a dozen or so statements like this, moments that, again, are good things and are not prescriptive, but could be seeds on the road to our decision to follow Jesus, we might look down to the finish line and find that it wasn't possible to reach because it was located across a canyon farther than the eye could possibly see, that there was no way to physically get to it, period. The only way to make it to the finish line would be if Jesus had the only helicopter that could cross the canyon. Anyone that had their arms out ready to be picked up, he would come and get. And what might happen if we understand this hard saying is he might start by picking up someone at the back that hadn't stepped forward at all just because they had their arms open and were ready. And he might come back and pick up someone in the middle and someone in the middle back and someone in the front. At some point, the analogy breaks down, as all good analogies do. But don't miss the main point. Our position on the field doesn't matter. Because literally, the only way to get to the finish line is to receive, to hold our arms out, and that's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Jesus, who was first in every way, seated at the right hand of God, made himself last on the cross to give us the chance to get across the chasm of death and have the hope of eternity. If you've never held out your arms to Jesus, I invite you to do that with me today. To say, Jesus, I don't have it all together. I recognize that I need you. Please come into my life. That's all he's looking for. I'm going to pray in a minute here. And if you would like to make a decision to receive God's free gift of grace today, to know for sure where you're going, all you need to do is pray that prayer with me. If you do pray it, please let me know. Or put it on a connection card so we can share some gifts with you and equip you to take next steps. If you're already a follower of Jesus, what is it? Is there something tugging on our hearts this morning that we can give over to God today and ask for freedom from? Is there an area of your life that you're more prone to comparison? Maybe it's work. Maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's relationships. And is it that comparison makes you question your worth and make you feel like you're not enough? Or is it that comparison puffs you up and puts your worth into your performance and what you can achieve? Whatever side you land on, we can hold out our arms and give that to God together today in order to receive freedom from it.
None of us deserve the denarius. None of us deserve eternity. And because of that, our place in line, our place on the field, doesn't matter ultimately within the framework of grace. Because our worth is not based on who we are and what we can do, but based entirely on who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross. Jesus wants our eyes fixed on him in order to live with freedom and for us to spend a whole lot less energy comparing and measuring ourselves to others. The more time we spend with Jesus getting to know him, learning to appreciate and operate out of a deep knowledge that everything we have is thanks to God anyway, that none of us are deserving, the more we are unbound by these ties of comparison and the more we have freedom to live like this with our arms open and to run after what matters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to start this morning by praying with friends who have never made a decision to follow you and maybe feeling a tugging this morning to say, yes, Jesus, I don't get it all right. And I need you, Lord. I want this hope. I want this hope of eternity. And I ask you into my life in your strong name. And we also that follow Jesus pray, Lord, would you take whatever it is that's rising up that we're identifying this morning that we tend to measure ourselves with. And we ask that you would receive it and take it. Wipe the slate clean. Lord, replace it with hope. Replace it with grace. Replace it with only what you did on the cross. Help us to understand that our worth lies in what you've done and Lord, that you have amazing things for us to do because of that, not to earn it. Lord, I ask that you help us be conduits of peace as we walk out of here today. Lord, particularly in the um, environment of uh, uncertainty and some fear that our city and our nation is experiencing right now, Lord. Would you help us to hold out hope? Would you help to protect the vulnerable? And would you help us to be available to whatever uh, opportunities you have for us to care for people this week in your name. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>